you never actually attain your goals because as soon as you reach your goal, you have a bigger goal. And that can be extremely exhausting and debilitating, or it can be inspiring and amazing. It all depends on if you approach it with balance. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Prana Gupta, to our show today. Prana is the founder and CEO of Hooked, a company that's redefining fiction for the Snapchat generation. The idea of Hook came in a very unique way. Prana was writing a novel with the goal of creating the next Harry Potter until she realized that many young people were no longer reading and spending a lot more time on their phones. This sparked their idea for their business and unique format, which tells stories through text, has over 100 million viewers across social media and a short form video app that's called Hook TV. The company has also received funding from Ashton Kutcher, Mariah Carey, LeBron James, and Jamie Foxx, to name a few. Although Prana is a very successful tech entrepreneur, it definitely didn't happen overnight. We chat with Prana about how her first startup had to close after a few years in because because of a very big competitor called Facebook, the importance of failing and iterating in business, why she sold everything she had and bought a one-way ticket to Costa Rica, and how she optimizes her life by always focusing on love and fulfillment. Prana has been named one of the most influential women in tech by Fast Company, and her writing has been featured in New York Times, Vogue, Forbes, and TechCrunch. Welcome to the show, Prana. Thanks, Yasmin. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And we were just chatting about this, but I came across your article in Vogue and how you kind of walked through how you sold everything and moved to Costa Rica with your husband. And you were just so real and authentic with your story. I figured our listeners would absolutely resonate with your your background, your story and your lifestyle. So thank you again for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on and I'm super excited. Let's jump into it. So I'd love to start with your upbringing. You grew up in a conservative town in Oklahoma as the oldest child of immigrants from India. And you've talked so much in other interviews about how growing up for you was tough, but it was the biggest blessing because you gained so much courage to pursue your dreams. Can you share more about what you mean by that and a little bit around what your childhood was like? So I grew up in a small town. It's called Shawnee, Shawnee, Oklahoma. It was a town of about 30,000 people. We had a mall, which was when I was, I think about 10, the mall was built in town. And that was like a big kind of central, you know, meeting point for the town. It was very much like Varsity Blues. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it was all about football and cheerleading. And my parents came from India. And so I was very much a minority there. Most people there are evangelical Christian. It's a very religious place. I had a lot of people my whole childhood trying to convert me. And it was really lonely. And, you know, for a large part of my childhood and my teens, I felt the pressure to pretend to be someone that I wasn't. And, for example, a big thing for me was just the color of my skin. I'm quite dark skinned. Even for an Indian, I'm pretty dark skinned. Even people, my family in India used to make kind of mean comments to me sometimes about how dark my skin is. And so this was something that I struggled with a lot growing up. And I remember 
in the summers, we would be at the pool and all of my girlfriends would be out tanning, you know, laying out tanning. And I would just cover myself in towels so that I wouldn't get dark. And it took a lot of soul searching for me, kind of going through childhood and especially puberty and adolescence. I had to dig deep. And I think I went through many cycles of pretending to be someone I wasn't, wishing I were white, you know, wishing that my parents didn't cook food that smelled in the house and things like that. But over time, I think I just started to understand that ultimately my differences were my strength. I started to realize that if I celebrate my differences, if I celebrate who I truly am deep inside, that even people who are conservative and who come from really different places than me and backgrounds actually are interested and they're curious to learn and they start to see me as someone special as opposed to different being bad. It's that different is special. And it was really that insight that helped me come into my own in Shawnee and over time really make friends and you know start to be appreciated in that town. And I took that lesson with me to college. And I took that. Ultimately, I think that was what gave me the courage to be an entrepreneur. Because when you're an entrepreneur, you have an idea that's different from any idea that anyone's had before. And most people think that different is bad in the beginning, because you know if it were obvious, everyone would be doing it. And so you have to kind of go through that same journey of you know, having that courage to believe in the way that you see the world that's different, to believe in that deep down and be able to go out and celebrate it and kind of bring other people into the fold and show them, convince them that that different is actually special. Wow, that's beautiful to see how, you know, your upbringing, wanting to try to assimilate, then really breaking out on your own, you really gaining that knowledge at such an early age is beautiful. And you see that with kind of your early career before you jumped into entrepreneurship to now how you run businesses. But that takes me to your life after college, right? You began your career as a management consultant. You were there for six months. You left, joined venture capital for six weeks, and then you left and you started your own business. So the confidence and courage you had is really admiring. Can you take us through that journey and how you thought about your career before you jumped into the world of entrepreneurship? I think for me, even from my youngest age, like I wanted to have an impact in the world. And, you know, maybe it sounds a little cliche. Like I went to Stanford and, you know, people always, I feel like make fun of people from Silicon Valley and the Bay Area who like want to have an impact on the world. But like, that was truly who I was. And it was for for as long as I remember that was I wanted to do something that mattered and that kind of changed people's lives. So I think I understood through my exploration in college, that for me, the way to do that would be through creating a business of so creating a product or, you know, something new, basically, right. And So I went into management consulting with this idea that, okay, I don't know yet what I want to create, but if I help other businesses, I'll learn. I'll learn about different business opportunities. I'll learn how businesses are created. But six months into management consulting, I think I just felt that there was just something for me personally that felt stifling about working in a large organization to then help another large organization solve some tiny little problem that they were dealing with. And I didn't feel like I had enough leverage basically in that situation. And back then, this was 2004, 2005. Entrepreneurship was not 
the hot thing yet, you know, and all of my friends were on very traditional career paths. They were planning to go to Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School and make lots of money. And I saw what they were doing and it just felt kind of long. And like I said, I just didn't feel like I was having enough impact. And so I made a move. One of my mentors who was a few years above me at Stanford was working in venture capital. And I saw how fast paced it was. And they were working with startups. And it felt like maybe I'll learn faster if I work as a venture capitalist. And so I made the jump and I got this job in venture capital. I was there for six weeks and there was just something about, I don't know, I just kind of hated the culture and I just felt my creativity and soul slowly dying basically over a six week period. And it was just like, this is not it. I feel like I'm wasting my life. I want to have an impact and I want to do it now. And it was just this kind of light bulb that I was just like, what are you waiting for? And so that's why I made the jump. And I think with anything, you know, when you're young, you have this kind of impatience, which is beautiful and amazing because that's what gives you the courage to go jump in. And, you know, I had these dreams that like, I'm going to have this successful startup within a year. (laughs) Then, of course, it took me, you know, many, many, many more years to actually have any kind of success. But I'm really glad that whatever it was, there was just this spark, this inkling that like, I need to go down this path and I need to do it now because it does take a really long time to actually learn and I'm glad I started early. Yeah, there's two things that come to mind. The first one is just talking about how you got your big success a few companies down, right? You've seen success throughout your way, but it doesn't happen overnight. And I think, you know, whether it's a side hustle or jumping into business, it's the best training ground for you to learn. And you don't necessarily get that success one year in, like you said. So I'm excited to dig deeper into your story. Another point I want to bring up is you mentioned, you know, at the time, entrepreneurship wasn't cool. Now it somehow became this hype thing where everybody wants to be a founder. And you said, you know, all your friends were in corporate jobs, in stable positions. I get a lot of questions from my friends who are looking to take that jump and they're still scared to kind of leave that corporate lifestyle salary. When you were in that position, were you kind of questioning yourself given most of your network wasn't doing this or did you ever have insecurities around that at that time? Yeah, it's a great question. I think in the very beginning, it was definitely like me tapping into that belief, you know, from when I grew up where I felt deep inside that this is who I am. This is what I need to do. And so I went for it. But as I did that, a lot of my friends were kind of like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, you're crazy. You know, why are you doing this thing? You're going to fail. It's really hard. I had so many people that were kind of more in mentorship positions that were like, startups are hard. Almost every startup fails. Don't do this. You know, here's another job. Like, if you're not happy with your job, take this job. (laughs) And so it was scary, you know, hearing all of the naysayers and people I really respected and admired. It was scary, but I felt like I had to follow this feeling deep inside. But then, as I think it got harder before it got easier because there was a lot of failure and there were moments, there were really dark nights basically where I felt like, oh my gosh did I make a terrible decision? Was this a wrong turn? Because I'm failing and look at all my friends, you know, a year later, two years later, three years later, they're getting promoted. They're making so much money. They're going to business school. I'd never even get into business school now because like, I don't have a good resume anymore. And there were absolutely those moments of soul searching that happened along the way. And I mean, 
honestly, they continue to happen at different points. The journey to success as a founder, it is not a straight line. I mean, there are so many valleys, you know, there's peaks and valleys. And when you're in those valleys, you look at the people around you and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm being left behind. And it's scary. Yeah. It's so important to keep those blinders on and just have belief in yourself and not look outside because in those low non-peaks, you can be pretty sad and disheartened for sure. Absolutely. The first business you started was a dating website. You got it to over 2 million users, which is actually quite impressive. So I'm curious, where did the idea come from? And why did you want to transition out of that? And we'll get into the next business you got into because 2 million sounds like pretty successful. Yeah, it sounds great. (laughs) And it felt great for a little while, a very short while. So actually, the dating part of it was actually a pivot. So the first iteration, so it was called Yari, which means friendship in Hindi. And the first iteration was actually a social networking site. It was Facebook for India. I actually co-founded it with the person who would eventually become my husband. He was my (laughs) his name is Prague. And so that was our first venture together. We've creating startups together now, basically my entire career. And It was 2005. It was May of 2005, I think, or early summer. Facebook had just raised a $12 million Series A. Wow. It was like really early days of social networking. Everyone thought Facebook was stupid. And they were like, how did this thing raise $12 million? (laughs) But I think I had just gotten on a few months earlier and I'd seen everyone get on. It was exploding. And I was like, this thing is cool. This is exciting. This is the future. And... I felt like this is going to be huge everywhere. Let's go do this in India. No one's going to be thinking about this right now. There's an opportunity to be early. Let's go do this in India. And so that was the seed of the idea. And that was when I quit my job. Parag was at that time, he had just finished his PhD at Stanford. He had a job offer to be a professor at Georgia Tech. He accepted it, but put a hold on it and said, I'm going to go to India with Prerna and start this social networking site. And so that's what we moved. We moved to India, tried to start it. Everyone in India just thought we were literally insane. They were like, nobody in India is ever going to put their picture up on a website because it's not appropriate. Basically, it was, you know, social networking is never going to work in India. This is what we were hearing. But We really believed in it. We kept at it, had some success over, I think it took us a while, but I think over after a couple of years, we managed to get a couple of million people in it and we were kind of having some momentum. And of course, meanwhile, Facebook was blowing up and then Facebook entered India. Oh, wow. (laughs) And that was the end of it, basically. And then we tried to figure out, can we do something else? We tried to pivot to dating. Yeah, there was just no chance. So yeah, that was but we stuck with it for four years. And there were lots of ups and downs. We learned an incredible amount. But after four years, I think it was just clear there was just no path forward for us. And so we made the very difficult decision of giving whatever money we had left back to the investors. It was all mostly friends and family. I mean, it was really difficult to raise funding for that company as well, uh, which is a whole other topic I can go into. And then at the same time, we had this other idea for you know mobile apps. I think the app store had just launched like a year ago and we had another idea. And so we're like, time to close chapter one and start chapter two, basically. So I know your next business was a music creation app called Songify, but did that start shortly after you closed your first business? And how did the inspiration for Songify even come about? 
Yeah. It was very soon after. It was kind of just basically open shut. You know, we just moved right on. And the inspiration really came from a passion of both mine and my husband's, which is music. My husband at the time had taken his job at Georgia Tech and the job was at the intersection of music and machine learning. So it's a really unusual field. It's called music intelligence. And basically he was creating machine learning algorithms that would interact with music and help people make music basically in different ways. And I am an amateur singer. I love singing, but I've never really been trained. And so we were just playing around together one day and we kind of came up with this idea to create a technology that would help amateur singers like me create music basically with like a backing track. That was kind of the idea. And one thing led to another and we ended up building an app and raising a little bit of funding. It was easier this second time around to raise some funding. And that was what led to our second startup. And actually before Songify, it was a different app called La Da and Songify. So we went through a lot of iteration and then eventually hit upon Songify, which was kind of the big hit. I see. Yeah. And we'll dig into that a little bit. And my question for you is when you were launching this new product with your idea, you and your husband, was it tough to go to investors given what kind of happened with Yari, how you had to close it down? Was it tough to raise money? And what were some of the learnings you took from Yari into the business? Yeah. What's so interesting is it was so much easier actually to raise funding the second time around. And I think this speaks so much to just the Silicon Valley ethos you know, Silicon Valley really embraces failure. And we were just able to focus on the things that we did achieve with Yari. You know, the fact that we did reach 2 million people, the fact that we had an idea that was the right idea at the right time. It was just, there was a crazy successful competitor that that beat us to it, basically. And I think more than anything, it's just the actual learnings that we had made us so much more effective. We moved faster. We were better at building products that actually resonated. I learned so much about pitching. I gained so much confidence. And so all of that made fundraising exponentially easier the second time around, even though we had failed the first time. Confidence is so key in life and business. And it's really until you get that experience firsthand that you build that confidence, right? You can be on the sidelines, learn how to run a business, listen to podcasts, but it's really until you put yourself in that situation that you get the best experience. And with failure, you learn so much. So it's better to jump in than just always be on the sidelines from my opinion. So going back to Songify, you mentioned that one July morning, you picked up your phone and you noticed that the app was number one on the Apple charts. That is any app developer's dream for sure. So what did it feel like to wake up at that? And did you have any indication or idea that you would ever get that level of success with Songify? So it was one of the most exciting days of my life. I still remember how it felt. It was just euphoria and elation. (laughs) It was amazing. And it was unbelievable. I mean, you know, we obviously had big dreams, but we never imagined that it would be number one. As a music creation app, we never thought that it would be that big. It was really, really an amazing feeling. But what I will say is that elation and euphoria was actually quite (laughs) short-lived. It was like a really incredible life lesson for me that you have these dreams and these goals that you set for yourself and you achieve them or sometimes even exceed them. And you think your whole life, when I reach that goal, I'm going to be happy. And what's crazy is that 
when you reach it, it's not exactly happiness. There is some elation and it feels amazing. And then there's so much stress that comes with feeling like you need to hang on to it and you need to achieve more. And I think that there are some good things to that because that's what drives us as humans to innovate and to make our society better. But as an individual, it's actually a really difficult thing to deal with because it can actually, it's weird. I mean, more money, more problems. It's so true. (laughs) And there was a whole cycle after Songify hit number one, where I really had to do a lot of soul searching again to find that place of joy and happiness. So it was an incredible experience, but also strangely disillusioning in a lot of ways. I can't tell you how often I hear that, especially with the women that I've had on my podcast who have reached a level of success that they might not ever have imagined or had a really big exit is that happiness doesn't sustain itself. And I think it just makes me realize the importance of just living your life with fulfillment and not always focusing on the next step and the next goal, which is so easy for all of us to get stuck into, including myself. So thinking about Songify, within six months, your life completely changed. You were acquired by Smule and you and your husband moved to the Bay Area from Atlanta and were executives and were making a pretty lucrative salary, which I'm sure was quite the adjustment from startup life. But you left it all and sold everything to do a one-way ticket to Costa Rica. So there's so much I want to unpack there. Can you walk us through the journey of what it was like to be acquired? and what it was like to leave everything behind you. Yeah. So it was essentially, I think, from the moment that day when Songify hit number one, I think it was essentially like a two and a half or three year journey where we kind of made it big. You know, Songify was a viral hit. We started to get a lot of attention from press, from investors, and also competitors that were interested in partnering with us or potentially buying us. Six months later, we ended up selling the company to our biggest competitor, Smule. And then we became executives at Smule. And so it was the dream, basically. We had a successful exit. It changed our lives financially. We went from having really very little money. We were basically living on Parag's professor salary, which was not a very big salary at all, (laughs) and living in kind of a small house in a seedy neighborhood in Atlanta to we ended up moving to a really ritzy neighborhood in the Bay Area. So it was kind of literally living the dream. But It was that entire journey, that period from when we succeeded with Songify, hit number one, to selling our company, to moving to the Bay Area, becoming executives with big salaries and all of this stuff, being in the press and all of that. It was really a journey kind of of disillusionment. The entire time I felt myself becoming less and less happy and having more and more stress and feeling my creativity die slowly. And that was, I think, the most tragic part because for me, being a founder was about creativity. It was about creating new things that were bringing joy into people's lives. And somehow by succeeding in doing that, I had taken the joy and creativity out of my own life. Mm. And I think it was during a Christmas break, basically a holiday, that Parag and I were just talking and just sort of asking ourselves, like, what's happened to us? Our life, our journey was supposed to be about art. It was about making music together, about creating amazing 
art and beautiful art together that we can then share with the world and bring joy to them. But we're not happy anymore. Like, why are we doing what we're doing? And it was really during that time, during that break, after talking about it, we were just like, this doesn't make sense. We need to take a break and leave and go get back to our happy place. And it doesn't matter. Forget the salary, forget the titles, forget the press, just go live again. And it was one of the best decisions we've ever made. And were people shocked when you officially quit? <laughs> yes, so much shock. It was, again, one of these moments where everyone was like, what are you doing? <laughs> but I think I've started to learn that when people react that way, that's yeah. a good thing. You're on the right track. <laughs> I totally agree. I think my family has always been confused. I've jumped around in my career like you, always searching for my purpose. And they're like, wait, what are you doing again? What are you up to? What's this podcast thing? Like, what's it? So <laughs> it's kind of a nice feeling because you're like, oh, people don't know it. Keep them on their toes a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you left Bay Area and you bought a one-way ticket to Costa Rica. What was your intention around leaving San Francisco and jumping into this new world that you were in? So the intention initially was, I mean, it was purely personal. When we left, we didn't know if we would ever do a startup again. It wasn't really meant to be just a break as such as just a new life direction. And it was, let's just live life. Let's just enjoy our day-to-day, -day, enjoy time together and spend our moments, spend our every minute of our day living the life that we want to live now, basically. That was the point of it. And so being at the beach was really important to both of us. We love the beach. We're really into the ocean and we both want to learn how to surf. And my husband, he's a musician. He plays an Indian classical instrument called Sarodh. He produces electronic music. And so he wanted to tap back into that and start actually making music again for himself. And for me, I always had this dream to write a book. I wanted to write the next Harry Potter, the next Lord of the Rings. This was my dream with an Indian protagonist. This has been my vision for the longest time. And so it was like, now's the time. What am I waiting for? Let's do this now. And so that was the idea. Let's go travel the world learn how to surf and get back into making art. And as we were traveling, you know, he and I tend to do everything that we do together. And so we started talking about the book more and working on the world and the characters. And as we were writing this book, we started to just think more about just the world of fiction and storytelling. And a lot of this came from in a lot of ways, the naysayers, basically, again, you know, so when we were traveling, people would ask, what are you doing? And we would talk about our book and people thought and it was a book for teenagers and people would say, oh, well, that's cute. You know, that's cute that you're doing that. But what's the point? Teenagers don't read anymore. And we kept hearing that again and again. Mm -hmm. And that kind of ended up inspiring us to ultimately come back and create another startup to solve that problem, you know, and to figure out how to get teens to read. Yeah. And it's interesting about that specific story because clearly, you know, you and your husband are in the tech world creating apps and you talk a lot about the lean startup method. I would love for you to talk about that because clearly you couldn't do that in a book. It's something you write for months or years and you don't really know people's opinions except the conversations you're having. So can you kind of speak through what the lean startup method was and how you apply that to a non-tech product? Because I think so many of our listeners can do that in their life today. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So Lean Startup is a book written by Eric Ries, who actually I admire so much. And he is now actually an investor in my current company, Hooked. And I've just been a huge fan of, of his work and him for a long time. And it's just a brilliant way to create 
products, to build companies, and honestly, just to live your life. And the basic idea with it is this idea of a minimum viable product. So you put out the simplest version of what you're trying to create. You build it quickly and cheaply, and you get it out into the hands of some customers or users, and you get data back from those users. A lot of times you'll run tests. You actually are running what are called A-B tests, where you're testing two variants of something, get it out in front of a few hundred people and get data back to see what's working and what's not. And you use that data to iterate and launch a V2 as quickly as possible. And you get more data back and you make small incremental improvements like this. You iterate, test, iterate, test. And through that, you basically end up creating a hit product. You create something that really resonates with these by testing and making these small improvements over time. And it is the most efficient way to make something successful. And it's really, in a lot of ways, it's kind of counterintuitive. And I think this one of the reasons that my first startup failed is we did the exact opposite, which is we had this grand vision for a product. We spent a year putting out a version of it. And by the time we put it out, the world had already moved ahead. And mm-hmm all these assumptions we'd made weren't accurate anymore. And so it's just a transformational way of building products. And while we were writing our book, and basically Lean Startup was kind of in a way, the inspiration for Hooked, because while we were writing our book, it was exactly what you said, which is it felt really strange to spend years behind closed doors working on this very long thing without having any feedback or any sense of whether it was going to resonate or not. And we had become so accustomed to building apps using the Lean Startup methodology that we started to ask ourselves, what if you applied this to books? What if you could get out a minimum viable version of that book basically early into the hands of your readers and actually get data back to tell you whether what you were writing was actually resonating and what parts of that story were resonating. And so our idea with Hooked was, can we create some sort of reading app that allows writers and hopefully writers, diverse writers, you know, writers that look different from previously successful writers, get those writers the ability to put their stories out early into the hands of readers. And by doing that, get data back, build validation for the story and help them kind of iterate and create a really great story over time. And going back a little bit, so when you guys thought about this idea and felt inspired, I know you use a lean startup method again for the early days of Hooked. I believe you guys were still fine-tuning how to communicate storytelling in a brief way for people to read, right? And I believe you started with images at first and a few other iterations. So can you talk through what you guys tried and when you really hit your aha moment of, what would work because clearly so much success came from after that aha moment. Yeah, absolutely. So our objective was to try and get teens to read fiction on the phone. And it was to solve this problem. You know, like we said, we had all these naysayers who said, basically reading is dying. Teens don't read anymore. There's no point writing books for them. (laughs) But we believed that storytelling is fundamental to humans. And this is a great art form that must survive. We just need to make reading engaging on the phone. So if you think about it, you know, novels that are written traditionally, a typical YA novel is between 70,000 to 100,000 words. So reading that much text on your phone is a terrible user experience. And so 
our thought was, well, of course, nobody, if they're spending all of their time on their phones, of course, they're not reading fiction because it's not designed to be engaging on the phone. So we wanted to just solve this problem. How do you make reading fiction engaging on a mobile device? When, as you mentioned, we started initially with image-driven stories because, of course, you know, Instagram and whatever, like that's what teens are doing. They're looking at images on their phones all day. Can we tell stories primarily through images with fewer words, but still get them to actually read? So we tried some image-driven ideas, but we really weren't able to get any traction. We were seeing very poor engagement on our initial ideas. And then we had this idea to tell a story in the form of text messages. And it really came about you know, with this realization that teens were telling the stories of their lives through chat. And so we tried a story in chat fiction with this new format that we came up with that now has come to be known as chat fiction. But we tried telling a five-minute story with the characters basically texting each other back and forth. And the engagement that we saw in this first test was just through the roof. It was crazy. Basically, 80% of the users that we put through this five-minute story completed the story. And seeing five minutes of engagement on anything on the mobile phone is actually massive because <laughs> usually you're lucky to get 10 seconds. And so it was like that light bulb moment. We were just like, wow, this engagement is crazy. Actually, the first time we tested it, we thought it must be an error because we were like, there's no way that we're getting this kind of engagement. It just doesn't make any sense. And we ran it again and we saw the same results again. And that was when we knew we were onto something. I love that. And I'm so glad I wanted you to talk through that because I think a lot of people listening, they want certain things to be perfect before they launch, right? Whether it's a physical product or a tech product or whether it's your podcast, it could really be anything. And it just shows, put your stuff out there and see what feedback people will give you and then pivot, pivot, pivot until something really resonates with the consumer. So it just shows you know, your success, your entire life success is really because of that. So it's really great to hear. And one thing I'd love to get your perspective on, you've created so many viral apps, so many viral businesses. This might be a pretty loaded question, but at a high level, what would you say are some of the key tips that you would share with people on what makes anything viral? So it's a great question. And I think it's something interesting that I've thought about a lot because I've been building these apps over many different years. And it's the specific thing that makes something go viral actually changes because the world changes. And so it's not about tactics. Like, you know, I can't give you a list and say, go market your product on this website or make your product look like this because all of those specific tactics are going to change. But over the years, I think this strategy, they're kind of three big strategic learnings that I've taken that have applied every single time. The first one is basically less is more. So in the beginning, when you have this vision for your product, you want to do all of these things. You have this really grand ambition of what you want your product to be. And that is usually if you distill that into a feature list, it's a laundry list of hundreds of things. When you're starting out to make something go viral, you really just want to do one thing really, really well. And so it's really important to just figure out what is that one thing that your product does better than anyone else and just build that one thing and go launch that one thing. So, you know, less is more, just figure out what is that one thing and do that one thing really well. The second is what we talked about already really, which is test and iterate, test and iterate, basically follow lean startup, be relentlessly data-driven, get your product out in its 
minimum viable version and test and iterate, test and iterate. The third thing is be a psychologist. So it's really tempting when you're creating a product to just build a product for yourself, but you're not building a product for yourself. You're building a product for consumers and to really build something that's going to resonate. You have to be able to really put yourself in the mind of your consumer and be objective about what you're building and try and think about, you know, as you're interacting with it, not how are you responding to it as the creator of that product, but how would someone in my case, a teenager in the middle of the country, how would she respond to this product the first time she's seeing it and really try and be attuned to your reactions in the mind of the consumer. And I think the last point, those are all super helpful. I think the last point sometimes can be difficult because you're so in the nitty gritty that you need to remind yourself to zoom out, which I catch myself all the time. And it's tough. That one's definitely tough, but it's good to train that muscle to zoom out, right? Exactly. And one thing I'd love to talk to you about, which you also mentioned in another interview, is how important balance is in your life. I know you and your husband have, I believe, a young son right now. How old is he? He's 21 months. Oh, so sweet. And you just talk so much about the importance for you specifically on balance. So I'm always curious, as a founder, CEO of a very successful high growth startup and mother, what does that mean to you, balance? And how do you incorporate that in your own life? It's a constant challenge because the easiest thing is to just let work creep into everything and just to be working 24-7. And it's so tempting to do that because you want to achieve your next milestone like tomorrow. But what I realized is that you know startups are a marathon. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a little bit of what I talked about, which you never actually attain your goals because as soon as you reach your goal, you have another bigger goal. And that can be extremely exhausting and debilitating, or it can be inspiring and amazing. It all depends on if you approach it with balance. And so what I've learned is that my best work happens when I am taking care of myself. It happens when I'm sleeping. You know, everything starts with sleep, you know, get enough sleep. Amen. (laughs) And it's not easy when you have a startup. It's not easy when you have a child (laughs) or multiple children, but prioritize sleep above all else. Prioritize eating well. You know, I think the food that you eat has a big impact on how sharp you are while you're able to think on your energy levels throughout the day. And so my husband and I are very methodical about the things that we eat. We have a certain breakfast and lunch that we pretty much eat the same breakfast and the same lunch every day. We have a set of very healthy things for dinner, you know, that we sort of rotate through. And I take a lot of joy in the food that I eat. It doesn't mean that I don't enjoy my food. It's just, I've found that that discipline is really important and and just helps me a lot in being effective and staying balanced. And then obviously exercise, work out when you can, get outdoors when you can. And then I think the final thing is making sure that you make time for the people in your life. Doing a startup can be very isolating and it's just important to make sure that you are continuing to cultivate real relationships and giving those relationships time. That's so true. And a good reminder for me and everybody listening. And to your point, 
it is a marathon, right? I think we can all get caught up in our own head of what success means, hitting the next milestone, pushing yourself to the next level. But you see a lot of businesses and people burn out and not even get to year three, year four, year five. And I really like the concept of the fact that it's a marathon. So doing what makes you feel good, self-care is so important, cultivating and keeping the relationships that are important to you, I think is just so important to talk about. Shifting gears a little bit, you have gone through the fundraising journey multiple times in your businesses. And in your latest venture, Hooked, you've raised money from top investors in Silicon Valley and Hollywood like Ashton Kutcher, Snoop Dogg, Jamie Foxx, Mariah Carey. I can go on and on. But thinking about your journey over the years, what advice do you have to our listeners who are looking to go down the fundraising route for their business? Yes. Fundraising is always hard. It's okay. Like expect it to be hard. It can get discouraging. You get a lot of no's. Even the most successful fundraisers, like if you go back and hear their stories, their life stories, they've heard no many more times than they've heard yes. And so remember that. Don't let that get you down. And I think the thing that you learn is that you get better at it over time. There's just kind of a nuance to it. Fundraising is fundamentally a social thing. It's the facts are helpful. It's helpful to have some good data to back you up. You need that, but it's 90% social. And so it's about putting yourself out there, finding the people that you click with, finding the people for whom your message will resonate. And like I said, you just kind of start to feel it out and find your groove over time. So just don't give up, be resilient, expect to hear no a lot, and just use every no that you get, just kind of try and learn something from it. From your perspective, who do you recommend not go down the venture capital route? Because I think sometimes people think that might be the only option for them. So I'd love to get your insights around that. I'm so glad that you're bringing that up. Yes, I think venture capital and we waited. I mean, we raised three seed rounds from angels actually before we went down uh, the venture capital route. Venture capital is a really specific thing. They have a certain formula for returns that they need. They are all seeking to invest in multi-billion dollar businesses. Those are few and far between. (laughs) And there are lots of really, really great businesses that you can build and that people do build that are not multi-billion dollar businesses. You can be extremely successful as a founder and as a person and extremely happy not building those businesses. And there are also lots and lots of investors out there who are willing and interested in supporting businesses that are not multi-billion dollar businesses. You also can just build a business that's successful and makes money without raising any money at all. And so I strongly encourage anybody that's listening to just explore different options and to not get sucked into this idea that the only way to do something successful is to go raise money from some prestigious Sand Hill Road VCs, because those VCs are looking for something very specific. And a lot of times money comes with expectations and it can actually oftentimes be detrimental. If you take money from an investor that has a certain set of expectations and will kind of expect you then to make decisions for your business that will lead you down the path that they want. So you give up a lot of freedom when you do that. And I think it's important to make sure that it's the right thing for your business. 
Yeah. And it might motivate you to make short-term decisions to meet certain metrics that they require from you and not really think about the long-term sustainability aspect. So I'm glad you kind of walked through it because I think a lot of people just always assume venture capital is the right route, but it really depends on what you're building, you know, who your investors are. And I'm sure we could talk another hour about just fundraising in general, but I think that's a good <laughs> high-level overview for sure. <laughs> And one thing I'm curious about, do you have any rituals that you do to stay motivated, to stay inspired? You know, from one perspective, you're a CEO, you're on the business side, you know, I'm sure it's tough. You hear no's from potential investors, but also you're creative. And I know you have to fill that bucket to just always create and be a good leader as well. So anything that you do that works for you outside of sleep and food, which I know is so critical. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I mentioned is just going outside. Nature for me, it's a really big source of inspiration. And I think if you go outside and just look at plants, <laughs> you'll notice how richly textured they are. You know, there's something about nature that there's so much depth and so much complexity in it. And I think when we surround ourselves, just when we are in the presence of that, it's just endlessly inspiring. And so for me, getting outside, I mean, that's something that during last year, you know, during COVID, I don't know why, but I didn't do it as much. I mean, obviously the parks were just literally closed for a while and then the logistics of staying away and whatever. And it's just, I felt again, that creativity just kind of being sucked out of me. And then we started going outside again. It was just so rejuvenating. So nature's a really big one for me. Meditation is one that, you know, I started a meditation practice. I've had it on and off since I was in high school and sometimes I don't do it. And then, you know, I get back into it, but meditation is just something, it just helps me. Ultimately, creativity really comes from within and it helps me sink back into it and just channel it. And then the third one is really just other people's art, whether it's documentaries or books or music, whatever it is, just making sure that I am always making time to actually be a consumer of art in its different forms. You get so much inspiration from other creative people in the world. That's so beautiful. And there's actually clinical studies about being around nature and how it impacts mood. So everything you're saying definitely makes a lot of sense. <laughs> And I want to be mindful of our time together and close on one last question that we like to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. I know we talked a little bit about this throughout the interview, but at this point in your life, what does wealth mean to you? Yeah, for me, it's one very simple word and that is love. It's the only thing that matters in life. And as people in business, we never say it. We rarely say it. And a lot of times we will sacrifice everything, including love, to make more and more money. And it's just the saddest thing that you can do because ultimately money is just a number. You know, your bank account just grows. It doesn't change really anything in your life. But the one thing that will make your life full and meaningful always is love. And love can come in so many different ways in your life. That was such a profound answer, Prerna. And it was such an honor to have you join us today. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Yasmin. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. 
To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.